Good morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, this morning, we're starting a new series. This series is going to be about rediscovering our all of God. This series was prompted by the Holy Spirit in me before this year began, which is very interesting because of the events of this year, I think that this series is very timely for this reason. I think that in our lives, even as Christians, we can allow circumstances and things of this earth and things of this life to become bigger and greater in our eyes than God is. And we need to get back to making sure that God is the greatest, biggest thing in our life. That we never lose our sense of wonder and awe and amazement and astonishment at our God. Throughout the Bible, those words are used. Wonder, awe, astonishment, amazement. All, on every page of the Bible, you and I come to a, a place where God does something that we should be in awe and wonder of. If nothing else, in who he is on every page of Scripture. And yet many times the things of this earth, the things of our own life, become more of a sense of awe and wonder than he does. And I think that's where God says, no, no, you've got to make it about me. I think that's one of the things we lose in our churches today is our churches have become places where it's about us. You even see that in signage of churches trying to get people to come. It's about you. No, it's about God. It's about God. And we can even become so familiar with God, even as, as those who followed God and walked with God, that, that we sort of lose that sense of who God is, and, and we, we stop being filled with that sense of wonder and awe at who he is. So for the next eight Sundays, we're going to be looking at the miracles of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. And through each of these passages, hopefully there will be something that stirs within us to say, God, I'm growing again in my awe and wonder and amazement and astonishment at you. And you now are becoming the greatest, biggest thing in my life. Not a disease, not an election, not anything of this earth. You, God, are becoming the greatest thing in my life, and everything else is going to pale in comparison and fade to the background compared to you, Jesus. In fact, when we come to John chapter 2, where is Jesus, and where does this first miracle take place? It takes place in a wedding. A wedding. Think of it. When you think of a wedding, what do you think of? You think of a bride and a groom, especially the bride, right? And yet you note something when you read this account of the miracle that Jesus did at the wedding in Cana. We don't even know who the bride and groom are. They're not even mentioned. Why? 
because that which we think is so vitally important fades to the background when Jesus is put front and center. And when we have Jesus in our midst, he becomes the greatest thing, and everything else that we think is so important and whatever, it begins to fade away. Rediscovering our awe of God. Will you follow through with me as we just go down through this passage of Scripture this morning, and hopefully over these next eight weeks, Jesus becomes even greater and bigger in our hearts and minds and in our lives than he ever has before. And we rediscover and recapture that sense of awe and amazement and astonishment at who our God is. And out of that, hopefully, we all grow to even trust him more and trusting him with more in our lives than we ever have before. So the Bible starts out, John chapter 2, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. Third day is interesting, isn't it? If you go back to the third day of creation in the book of Genesis, what's happening on the third day? Life is emerging. What happens the third day after Jesus is put in the tomb? He comes to life again and conquers death. There's something going on here on the third day, and the presence of Jesus is going to bring about something that could never happen if Jesus wasn't there. Jesus' mother was there, but also it says in verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Notice that Jesus is willing to be a participant in the normal affairs of life. He wasn't one that isolated himself and didn't, you know, participate in, in the joys and in the everyday things. He was willing to be there. In fact, when he was invited, he came. Jesus never turned down an invitation. It's always beneficial to you and I to invite Jesus into our life into every situation in our life. Because here's the thing, when Jesus is present, anything can happen. When Jesus is present, it changes everything. That's why Jesus not only wants us to invite him into our life, and he'll accept that invitation, he wants us to invite him into, the, into our church, and Jesus, you are always welcome here at the Oasis. We invite you in here, and we know that you are here with us today. Jesus wants to be invited into our homes. He wants to be invited into our, our place of business, into our school. Jesus will always accept invitations, and when Jesus is present, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Is there a place in our life that we need to invite Jesus in? Is there some part of our life that sort of we've said, you know, Jesus, you, you can come into this area and that area, whatever, but that area is off limits. That's just my little closet and, and you can't come in there. We need to let Jesus into every place, every place. It's always beneficial to invite Jesus in. Then it says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. 
It was a big deal to run out of wine in a wedding celebration, which in that culture lasted for several days. Remember, wine is symbolic of joy and celebration and the abundant blessings of God, and they ran out. But it reminds us of something. The things of earth will run out. The things of earth will fail after a time. They will be lacking they are insufficient in and of themselves. They can't go on forever. And Jesus' mother, who was there, comes to her son and says, Jesus, they have no wine left. Now, we know from later on in the passage in verse 11 that this is the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. So I don't believe that Jesus had ever done a miracle up to this point in his life. But here's what we are seeing in this dynamic taking place between Jesus and his mother. It is pretty obvious at this point that Joseph has died and passed off the scene. And that Jesus being the eldest, if you will, is sort of the head of the family at this point. And even though maybe Mary has not seen Jesus do a miracle she does believe that her son, obviously, is very special. And if anybody has an answer, if anybody can figure this situation out, because this poor family, they're going to lose their reputation over this a little bit. They're, they're going to lose some honor, if you will, over running out of wine at either their son or daughter's wedding celebration. That was not going to go well for them. And so she comes to Jesus, and she simply says, Jesus, they have no wine left. Is, is there anything, if, if anybody can figure this out, if anybody has an answer, I know my son, Jesus, will have an answer. It's always beneficial to invite Jesus. What we also see in verse 3 is it's always beneficial to appeal to Jesus, to ask him. Jesus even said, you have not because you ask not. And notice that Jesus here, part of the glory of Jesus is not only that he's willing to accept our invitations and willing to be a part of anything and everything we invite him into, but he's willing to let us ask him for things. Ask, seek, knock and it will be given to you. And at least Mary had that consciousness to say, I don't think anybody else can help, but Jesus can do something. I'm going to ask him. So often in our lives, Jesus is the last one we ask rather than the first. And she goes right to Jesus and says, Jesus, they got nothing left. I don't have an answer for this. So I'm coming to you, Lord. What can we do about this? Have you taken the things that you're dealing with in your life, the things you may be struggling with in your life, have you taken them to Jesus? Have you asked him about those things? Have you sought him and, and his answer for the questions that you might have and, and, and the things that, is rolling around in your head? Have you went to him and talked to him about these things? Because Jesus is always accessible. Even as the Lord of glory, he's always open to our prayers, and he hears the things that's on our heart, and he wants us to bear our hearts 
to him. He wants us to share our burdens with him and the things that may be troubling us and causing us anxiety and stress. And so here we see Jesus being invited and coming to a wedding and then being appealed to in the midst of this celebration because they've ran out of wine. Notice verse 4, a verse that troubles many, and we do have to just take a moment and look at this. What is going on here between Jesus and his mother? When Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. Jesus, first of all, is not in any way being disrespectful to his mother. In that culture, that address, the way he's addressing her, is not being disrespectful. What he is doing at this moment between his earthly mother and him is clarifying, if you will, who he is to her. Now, let's be fair to Mary here. In, in no way am I being critical of Mary or dissing Mary in any way, but what has happened here, even in just a little bit, is that Mary has become a little bit maybe too casual and too familiar with Jesus. In the sense that she still sort of, at this moment, treating him as if, He's just her son. And Jesus here is just simply, in, in a very tender way, reminding her, I'm not just your son, but more than that, I'm the son of God. And I created you, and I created everything that you see. And Mary, you just need to remember that this is not an ordinary mother-son relationship here. I'm the son of God. And I do not operate on your timetable. I operate on my father's timetable. And, and I'm not just going to do something just because you appealed to me, because I have a higher priority in my life. And that is, I came to do my father's will and I am not going to allow anything to interfere with that. Now, we do believe, I, I do believe, that Mary had some kind of, of insight, if you will, maybe even through the Spirit to even bring this to Jesus at this point, because obviously Jesus is willing to make this celebration in Cana the place where he does his first miracle. So maybe she was prompted by the Holy Spirit to sort of be the instrument that got the ball rolling, if you will, as we say. But what I want us all to remind ourselves of is this. You and I have to be careful, even though God invites us to be close to him, even though he calls us his friend, and all of that, that as Christians, that we don't become too casual in our relationship with God. He's God, and we are not. 
And we must always approach him and, and appeal to him with a reverence and respect of who he is. And we should never lose that, no matter how close we get to God. We should always be in awe and wonder and astonishment and amazement at him and have a very healthy respect and reverence for who he is. It's great that we are close to him. It's, it's great that we have that comfortability with him. That's good. But let's not cross that line to where we treat him very casually, if you will, where he becomes so familiar that we sort of lose that separation to our holy God. I think that's primarily what had happened here. And again, I don't fault Mary. That, that's a tough line to ask of any human being that you're going to be the earthly mother, but you've always got to remember that your son is not just your son. He's so much more than that. Notice verse 5. His mother told them, the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. So again, we may be missing part of the conversation that Jesus had with his mother, but it's very clear then from what she says to the servants who are there at the wedding that he certainly wasn't put off or expressed uh, a lack of care or, or uh, an unwillingness to step in and do something. That's certainly not the case here. And by his willingness to help out this family, he's going to restore their reputation and their honor and whatever shame could have come about by them running out of wine. And that is so like our Jesus. Because again, part of why we should always be in awe and wonder of him is no matter where we come up short, no matter how we fail and lack and are insufficient, God can come in and redeem and put together and put back the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of life's situations. And he can even restore our honor and he can get rid of the guilt and the shame. Yeah. His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. It is always beneficial to invite Jesus. It is always beneficial to appeal to Jesus. And it's always beneficial to obey Jesus. I don't want to get too technically into the language here this morning, but she literally says in the original, just do it and don't hesitate to do it. In fact, the words of Mary to the servants should be words that you and I live by every day. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, do it. And do it without hesitating. If he's telling us to do something, do it. It will always not only bring him glory, it will always benefit us when we do the things Jesus tells us to do. Notice she allowed Jesus to take charge and solve the problem, verse 5. She pointed others to Jesus and not to herself. And Mary's request reflects her faith and confidence in her son. If he's telling you to do something, then it's the right thing to do. You do it. So notice, verse 6, there were six stone water pots or water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, big pots. They were used, again, for the purification. Clean water, but it was just water. And notice something, that Jesus 
always uses what's available. Because listen, my Jesus and your Jesus created the entire universe out of nothing. So he doesn't need like a lot to start with, right? So there were six water pots there, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So even if you take the low end, the 20, that's 120 gallons of water. And Jesus told the servants, verse 7, fill the water jars with water. Literally, fill them up till it's full, till, till there's nothing it can hold except the water. So they filled them up to the very top. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward, the one who's in charge of the wedding celebration, or as we would say today, the wedding reception. And the word draw doesn't mean to draw from the top. It means draw from deep down. I love that. Jesus saying, get down in there and start from the bottom and draw it out. That's what Jesus wants to do in our lives. He wants to fill us up with himself, and he wants to create in us a spiritual well, if you will, that we can always draw down deep from and pull out. When the head steward tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom. Several things. First of all, notice something. Jesus turned the water to wine, the power of God to change something, a change that could only be brought about by God, a transformation from ordinary water to the best wine these folks ever had. Who did it, Jesus? And what is Jesus then expressing? I can do the same thing in your life. I can either have the power to change the circumstances of your life or I have the power to transform you to be able to rise to the circumstances. And oh, do we need to hear that today. If Jesus doesn't change the circumstances, it's not because he doesn't have the power to do so. So then the only other alternative is Jesus is saying, then I want to transform you to have the power and the strength through me to be able to handle your circumstances. Either way, Jesus can do it. If Jesus can turn water to wine, then he can transform anything. He can change anything. Do we believe that today? Have we lost our sense of awe and wonder and amazement and astonishment at what Jesus can do? If he doesn't change the things around us, then he can change us. And notice, he changed the water into wine immediately. It did not need to take time to be fermented. Many have said, well, I don't, I don't know whether this was real wine or not. I, I think it was grape juice. Then why did the head steward talk about them getting drunk? I don't know about you, but I, I don't think I could drink enough grape juice to get drunk. <laughs> and by the way, another question comes up. Why would God create something that man could abuse? Well, because that's our responsibility if we abuse it. God has always given mankind gifts that are to be enjoyed, but it doesn't mean that you and I don't have the choice to abuse God's gifts. We do. God gives us good things, 
but says those are good within the parameters and the boundaries that I give you to enjoy them. Go all the way back even to the garden where God created the most beautiful environment mankind could have ever lived in and said, it's all yours to enjoy except that one tree. They abused the gift of God. And ever since then, mankind has abused the gifts that God has given. That's not on God. That's on us. He turned the water into wine. Now, the head steward, verse 9, did not know where it came from. But notice this. I want to point this out because this is important because it was included in the word of God. It says, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. What's that tell us? When we serve him, we are given greater insight into who Jesus is and to the source of what's going on. That's why serving God is so important. It takes us from being a spectator where we're just sitting and where we're an active participant, where we're serving. And as we serve God, as God directs us, we begin to see him do things in and through us that we could never see if we weren't serving him. And we begin to understand that he is our all-sufficient source and that everything we will ever need to live and serve and do anything in this life, we can just look to him because he's got us and he's got it. Only the servants knew how special for them. What a witness and testimony to them as they drew down deep out of those water pots. And can you imagine what they saw and what they thought when they knew that all they had filled those water pots up with was ordinary water and what was coming out of it was the best-looking wine and, and all that that they could ever have imagined? He calls the bridegroom, the head steward, and says to him, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. There's a way you do this, right? You have not followed proper protocol. <laughs> you have kept the good wine until now. Oh, my friends, it's not just good. This word speaks about what's best. What is superior quality? The head steward's basically saying, I've never drank wine that's as good as this. And what's that tell us? When we invite Jesus in, when Jesus is present, when we appeal to Jesus, when we do what Jesus tells us to do, we will experience the highest quality best that we can ever experience. God always will give us what's best for us, and his very best. And I love this, too, in that it came sort of as, as things were winding down at the end. And that reminded me of something. That remember, as a Christ follower on this earth, you and I have the best yet to come. That, that all that we go through here, whether it's, 70, 80, 90, even 100 years on this earth, we got a glory in eternity to look forward to. And that the best that God has for us is yet to come. God is not going to give us his best blessings here on earth because if we die or he comes back for us in the rapture, we're going to be separated from those things. 
God is reserving his best blessings for his children so that you and I can experience them and enjoy them for all of eternity. Now, it doesn't mean God doesn't bless us abundantly down here. He does. And you and I can never outgive God. And by the way, the amount of wine that Jesus produced shows us the wealth of his loving kindness because Jesus doesn't just give a little. Jesus gave them 120 new, at least 120 more gallons of the best wine they'd ever had. That's the way God is. He's not skimpy. He doesn't just, just give enough to get by. No, when God blesses, he blesses abundantly. And there's not a one of us in this room this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ is our Savior, that cannot testify and witness to the fact that when God blesses our life, he blesses it abundantly. And if we simply invite Jesus in, to our life like never before and allow him to take over our life, we will begin to experience that abundant, highest quality of life that Jesus said he came to give us. When he said in John 10, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Are you experiencing the best that God has for you right now? Because God only has our best interest at heart at all times. Then verse 11 says, Jesus did this as the first, the beginning of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. The word miraculous sign speaks about something that points beyond itself to something greater. I want us to keep that in mind throughout this series. These are signs that point beyond themselves to, in a sense, the source and what's behind it. Everything else fades away, and it's not even the water and the wine that is front and center. It's the one who brought the water into wine. It's Jesus. Jesus is at the very center. Everything else is fading away here, and Jesus is the one that is bigger and greater than anything and everything else at this wedding celebration. Well, guess what? Jesus is still doing miracles. He's still performing signs from a distance while he's there in heaven. And those signs and miracles are there to point us beyond the miracle or sign itself to something greater or to someone greater, Jesus. And everyone in this room who knows the Lord as your Savior, guess what? You are a walking miracle. Because the Bible says that those of us who are saved, he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, the, of, of Jesus, the Son of God, and he forgave us of our sin. That's a miracle, my friends. That is a miracle of massive proportions. And so what is our life to be? Our life is to be a sign. As we go through this life, we are to have a life that points people beyond ourselves to the one who saved us and gave himself for us. They are to see Jesus through our life. We are a walking, miraculous sign every day that is to go out into the world and show people the reality of God and the power of God and the presence of God and what God can do when we turn our lives over to him and invite him into our life. And then it says, in this way, he revealed his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. Let's talk for a moment about the glory of God. God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. It is not just a part of him. It is all of him. All of him is glorious. Another way to speak about the glory of God is God on display. It is God visibly expressing himself. That's what glory is. And notice it says then, he revealed God was on display as he turned the water to wine at the wedding feast. God was on display. Guess what? The Bible says that you and I can reveal God's glory too every day as his walking miracles. That God can be on display through our life and the way we live it. That people can see God through us. God wants to reveal his glory. In fact, Paul even said to the Ephesians that God's glory should be on display in the church. That God should be on display in the church. That when the church comes together, God should be on display. Oh, that that would always be true at the Oasis Church. That when people come, that they realize this isn't about us, this is about our God. And when we even just drive onto this campus, immediately when we set our feet on this place, it should be about God, not the things of this earth, not these other things that a million years from now isn't going to matter. It needs to be about God, and we need to be coming to rediscover and recapture our awe and wonder and astonishment and amazement of God and worship him here. And the Bible then says, his disciples, his followers, believed in him. Now, that says something to you and I, because that means that they were already following him. They were already his disciples. So this isn't speaking about that initial trust in Christ as their Savior. This is speaking about a deeper belief in Jesus than what they had previously. That because of what they experienced, guess what? They realized, oh, my goodness, He's even greater than I even thought up to this point, and I can trust him with even more than what I've trusted him with up to this point. It is literally speaking about the absolute transference of trusting in anything or anyone other than him and totally resting all of my weight, if you will, upon Jesus Christ. Do we have that kind of belief? My hope and prayers as we go through this series of rediscovering our all of God, that Jesus Christ will become so great and our opinion of him and estimate of him will continue to grow to such a level that whatever I haven't trusted him totally for up to this point in my life, I'll give that to him now. I'll realize, you know what, Jesus, I don't know why I've been holding on to that, why I've been trusting in me or anyone else or anything else other than you. No, I'm, I'm giving that to you. I'm trusting you with that. Maybe it's a part of our own life that we've held back from truly just giving to him, whatever that is. That's what Jesus is looking for. As he reveals his glory, 
as God is on display, he doesn't just do it to be a grandstander. He's not a P.T. Barnum just out there trying to have a show. God reveals his glory so that his people will trust him more. God reveals his glory so that those that haven't trusted him at all will put their faith and trust in him as their personal savior. That's why God puts himself on display. And so here today, if there's anyone here, anyone watching over live stream today, you've never come to a place where you've trusted Christ as your savior. Now's the day. Today's the day. Jesus has shown who he is. And, and he's saying, if I can turn water into wine, there's nothing I can't do. I can save you. Trust me with your eternal destiny. And now he's saying to all believers here today, whatever we haven't trusted him with up to this point in our life, he's asking us to trust him. He's asking us to put that thing or that person or that situation into his hands and to say, I can be trusted with that. It's to place our full confidence, our full belief, resting all of our weight on Jesus for whatever that is. So in closing, turn with me to John chapter 20. I want to end with this this morning, even though I could have started with this this morning. These words are really the purpose of John's gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And we'll be referring to these over the next eight weeks. John says, Now Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Isn't that cool? In other words, even the stuff that's in the Bible, it's not exhaustive. Jesus did so many other things that even the Bible doesn't mention. I can't wait to find out what those things were. But, verse 31, these are recorded so that you may believe, so that you may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then by believing, by continually trusting in him, you may have life in his name. And again, that life isn't just eternal life. It's abundant life. It is the highest quality of life that a human being can experience on this side of heaven. But that life can only be experienced when you and I are continually trusting him with everything and anything in our life and saying, God, I know you're trustworthy. There, there's no one more reliable or dependable than you. And whatever is bothering me, whatever is troubling me, whatever I'm holding on to and trying to deal with myself, no, 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 no more. You're the greatest. I'm giving it to you. Would you give him everything and anything that may be troubling you today and come to a place where you realize, Jesus, you truly are the God of miracles. You're a miracle. I'm a miracle. We are all walking miracles of God. Let's stand and pray. Lord,
you are here today with us, moving in this place. You are making a way for your people. You are displaying your glory to your people today. We are seeing you for who you really are, God. And as we see you for who we really, you really are, God, may everything begin to fade into the background. May you become the biggest and greatest thing in our life. May the things that bother us and trouble us become so much less than what they are. And may we see you more than anything. And God, whatever we need to trust you for right now, whatever miracle in our life, Lord, that we may need to trust you for right now, God, give us the faith. Give us that ability to be able to just put it into your hands and leave it there, God, once and for all. Show us your glory, God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.